Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's that time of the week. One of our favorite shows, This Week with Wendy. The only show that shows you the real SoCal estate of mind. With our host, Wendy Ross, who after decades of working at real estate brokerages in Silicon Valley in Orange County, she decided it was time for something different, a different real estate business model. And so she created Veracity Real Estate. Time was ripe for renewed commitment to bespoke client advocacy at all price levels. Yes, that's something you don't see very often. And through it all, she's built a company of data-driven real estate investment advisors. Kind of some data nerds almost here. It's hard to believe when you meet Wendy here, but uh, she likes that nerdy stuff. All in all, she's a truth seeker and a truth teller. And truth be told, we can't wait to hear what she's going to tell us each and every week here. So welcome, Wendy, back. Good morning. You're so you're so subdued today. You're, you're kind of in a relaxed uh, mode, a little casual looking today. You're I know. Not the... I'm kind of chilling today. <laughs> okay. I, I'm chilling already, and I'm just I'm I'm laughing loudly in inside um, that you bandy about nerd as if it's a bad word. <laughs> I We're do. proud of our nerdiness. You are okay. You yeah. wear that banner proudly. Yeah, there? I see Tony's grinning. We, we kind of wallow in this. So, you know. Geek out and, and get it. Well, you have more nerdy facts about Orange County, uh, and I look forward to them each and every week. It is what I do. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall, right? (laughs) But, you know, to your point, you know, you can count on me to give analysis that you just don't find anywhere else. And one of the ways that I can provide the kind of analysis you don't find anywhere else is by aligning with and working with experts who bring new experiences and new insights to the market. So we have a a more well-rounded perspective that we bring to light. Um, And sometimes my expert guests have so much to share that we need to have them back over and over again. Like Tony, it's a a repeat performance. So delighted to have Anthony W. Burton back again with me. He is the founding member and manager of managing partner of AWB Law here in Orange Uh, He spent his career litigating and fighting on behalf of clients. And it doesn't matter if their needs were real estate related. It could be from an injury, a business dispute, or, or of course, a real estate dispute. He works closely with his clients to evaluate the appropriate legal strategies and to develop a plan that's going to be accomplished as efficiently as possible. So, again, that translates to cost savings. He's a tireless advocate for his clients and has tried several jury and bench trials successfully on their behalf. And uh, Tony, before we dive into all things you, real estate, and the law, please give me a minute. I'm going to just reframe what happened in the real estate market last week. It was an interesting week. It was um, gratifying that we had 12% more active listings come on the market. It was only 425, but it's moving in the right direction, so I'm happy. 524 homes went into escrow, which was down 10% from the prior week, but truly, that's just because there was nothing to put into escrow the prior week. We sold 658 homes. That was up 18%, which again, great. We're moving them, but we're moving them faster than we're getting the inventory in the market. So what does that yield? Higher prices. The median price was up against the week prior, again, another 5%, suddenly at $1,050,000. So our median price in Orange County is stable at and above a million dollars, which is nuts. Homes are selling in six days. That's not changed at all. It's about as fast as you can sell them. And again, even though we're selling more, the prices are going up. The list price to sold price ratio continues to be super strong at 107%. So we're pricing them higher and we're still consistently getting more. And what I'm really hearing, um, which fascinates me from 
virtually every lender I ask is that we're having no trouble with appraisals now because the the rate has been so fast and so furious. There are plenty of comparable sales and appraisers are all pretty much on the same um, bandwagon indicating this is a continued accelerating market. So the values are coming in. So what I find interesting, and I have been loudly proclaiming this, is that Orange County is its own little slice of hell when it comes to real estate. We have far fewer homes to sell, yet proportionally we're selling a lot more of them than elsewhere in the state and elsewhere in particular Southern California. And a report came out last week from a prop tech company called OJO Labs, and they cited a survey that was recently con- conducted, and it refutes the notion of mass migrations, which is what I've been saying all along. Instead, that what they consistently reported was that people are doing these micro migrations, meaning that most of the people that they surveyed said that they were relocating within 50 miles of where they started. And that's exactly what's happening here in Southern California. We're seeing inventory, active inventory of homes for sale growing in all the counties around us. So LA County has increasing inventory, Riverside County has more, San Diego County has more, and we have less because they're selling there and they're buying here. So it's having this exponential impact on us. And when I looked yesterday, um, analyzing the data yet again, I saw that there were 40,000 homes listed for sale in LA County overall. There were fewer than 4,000 in Orange County. And yes, LA County is a lot bigger than we are, but they're not 10 times our size. They're about three, depending upon this migration that's going on, uh, three to four times our size, really three and a half times the size of Orange County. So I could see them having three or four times more inventory than we do, but not 10 times. So people, again, when you hear these reports about Southland inventory stabilizing, yeah, sure, just not here. So don't come crying to me when you write lowball offers and you don't get anywhere. Listen to me and let's make a strategy that works. So enough about real estate. That's all I have to say about that. Back to the fun stuff. Every week I get to have a notable name here talking to us about smart things that in some way or another touch real estate. And this week we brought back Tony Burton um, because we want you to know what we know. We want you to know what's going on in the market, really, what's going on behind the scenes. And interesting, a lot of people don't want the general population to be aware of what's going on, like my nerdy data I just shared with you. Uh, that's need to know stuff. So we're bringing Tony back to share with us all things about real estate law. And thank you for coming back, Tony. Thank you for having me on again, Wendy. I appreciate that. You're the best. You're my go-to. So I've got a million questions, but I need to know lately, um, what are people suing for or getting in trouble about? What are you seeing? Well, I'm actually seeing a lot of disputes that I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, with buyers and sellers who are not closing on some of their transactions. Mm. And it, it comes up in a variety of instances where one side or another can't close or won't close. Um, I've seen some sellers uh, enter into a contract and only to find out that they can now, they could list it, you know, a couple of days later and get even more money. Right. And they'll contact me and ask me, well, am I allowed to do that? <laughs> Which, no, you're not. <laughs> if you want to get sued, sure, go ahead and give that a try. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the you know, amount of money that you're going to make on the sale compared to what you're ultimately going to have to pay mm-hmm. uh, is going to be problematic for you. Uh, to say nothing of the fact that the buyer actually has a right to sue you and force you to sell the property if you don't close on that transaction. Exactly. It's a unique right that a buyer of real property has because in California, real estate is considered to be unique. 
So in certain contractual situations, uh, there's a remedy called specific performance mm -hmm. where you can force another party to do something that you would be required to under the contract instead of just suing for money damages. So that's always a risk that a seller has if they choose not to close on the transaction. Um, and have you had a number of sellers approach you about this and go th and go forward with the process? More than I've ever had in the past wow. uh, in terms of people asking me about it. Mm -hmm. Now, when they ask me, should they do it? <laughs> I, I, I don't generally make legal decisions for my clients. All I can do is tell them, here's what your options are. Here's the risks with this option. Here's the benefits and go through everything with them. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, they have to decide what their risk tolerance is and what they want to move forward with at that point. Um, so uh, those kind of disputes I'm seeing a lot of and a lot of inquiries about that and mm -hmm. then issues over, you know, um, good faith uh, deposits uh, oh, really? into escrow. Yeah. Parties wanting to know, can the other side keep my deposit or mm -hmm. can they not? Um, this is also another unique wrinkle that California has where... You know, generally with contracts, uh, you're not allowed to penalize parties. Mm -hmm. And so we, we, there's a term for it called liquidated damages. Right. But in real estate contracts, there is a little carve out where you are allowed to do that. And there's, an, you know, at least in a, a rebuttable presumption that it's valid, depending on how much the deposit is. So if you're at mm -hmm. about 3% of the purchase price or mm -hmm. less, mm -hmm. you know, you can enforce that. Uh, but when it's greater than that, you can run into some problems. But isn't a seller only able to keep a buyer's deposit if the buyer is not performing per the agreement? That is correct. And okay. you deal with a lot of these agreements and, mm -hmm. and most of them have some standard provisions where you can notify the buyer. You have an obligation to close. Here's a notice. Mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're demanding that you close pursuant to our contract. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, the contract will spell out what the seller's rights would be uh, in terms of being able to retain the deposit. So I've been getting a lot of calls on that one just as much as uh, as the, <laughs> the other calls. And that's really consistent. I had another attorney friend of mine say something a few weeks ago about how there's also a carve out in the law. And let's take that example that a, a buyer is not closing the escrow as agreed. Um, and he had indicated there was some provision for if something came on came along that was beyond the buyer's control um, and he was unable to close until whatever that condition was was cured that 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 was forgivable as it were it actually is yes okay. um and and so the california real estate contracts aren't exempt from other contractual defenses so mm. if there's uh, an impossibility or uh, another defense that could yes. apply to the buyer they can still use it under those circumstances so there are occasions where something will come along and it's out of the buyer's control mm -hmm. and that can be used as an argument as to why the buyer should get their deposit back but right. you know again each situation is different so you know the facts would dictate whether or not that's appropriate or not but you are correct yes and that's one of the trickiest parts um for me to explain to a buyer because our California residential purchase agreements are onerous at best. You know, I mean, we, we took it from 11 pages to 15 just because, right? So when I get to the portion where I talk, explain to them and I talk in depth about what liquidated damages means and I explain to them that contracts are bilateral agreements. It takes both parties to make it effective and it takes both parties to dissolve it. And if you want to cancel that contract because of an issue you've discovered, you actually do need the seller to sign off on it and agree to it before you get your depo deposit back. And not all sellers are rational and nice human beings. We hope that they are, but they're not. And they may actually not understand what the, the cause is that we're putting forth. And so I have to explain to them because I choose to have well-informed clients. 
I, I have to explain to them that we will fight for your deposit should it come to that, but it could actually end up being a legal fight because we have to get the seller's agreement to release the money or escrow won't. And most times, if you have rational clients, they'll understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've noticed is oftentimes if there is going to be a dispute, it mm-hmm. can be headed off relatively quickly if you just communicate with the other side. Thank you so much. <laughs> a little communication goes a long way, right? In, in all walks of life, it does, yes. Yes. Well, and something I've noticed in reading your blog post, which, by the way, I love. I love your Thank blog. You. I love my blog. I love your blog almost as much. But anyway, in your blog post, I see you sprinkled these words throughout good faith. And that's something I talk to my clients about. And I think your point about communication demonstrates good faith. If people are trying to communicate and be really transparent, that should go a long way, shouldn't it? Oftentimes it does. And I've, I've found when I try to mediate disputes between my clients and other parties, mm-hmm. at least when they're not represented, when you approach it that way, the other side generally appreciates it. Yeah. You know, I mean, when you're, you know, and I don't try to strong arm them or approach them like, you know, I'm a big, bad attorney, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to you know, steamroll over you, yeah. you know, when, when the parties feel like there's some give and take on both sides, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and again, obviously rationality has to prevail at the end of the day, getting, every, <laughs> getting everyone to set aside emotion. When you can get them to do that, I've noticed that it is very easy to work through a lot of disputes. Thankfully. Yes. And something that, um, that just leaped into my mind when you were talking about this example of a seller who called and said, Hey, can I get out of this contract? Cause I just realized I can get a whole bunch more money if I you know, put it back on the market and, and whatever, whatever. Again, as a broker, I explain to my sellers the ramifications of accepting an offer and they are, you are bound to a contract, which is only going to be severed if there's non-performance, you know, or for some reason you talk the current buyer into willfully canceling the escrow. And in this market that I just described to you, that's never going to happen. So it begs the question to me of, was that seller correctly advised by their broker? Because shouldn't a broker have said, you know, look, once you, once you accept this offer, you're you're in it? And it, are you seeing buyers and sellers come to you saying they want to take action against their broker because they didn't get good representation there? Or is that not happening? I do see that occasionally. I'd say there's a good mix of these people representing themselves, which mm. I I'm always immediately question why they did that. And mm-hmm. if it's really from the standpoint of cost savings, mm-hmm. You know, I usually point to the fact that you're calling an attorney because you're afraid of a legal dispute, right. you know, which in the long run is going to be more expensive than the couple of percentage points that you could have saved by just buying a broker than properly advised from the beginning. And I try to push them that direction if that's possible, yeah. you know, depending on where they are in, in you know, the particular dispute that they're in. But I do hear, I do get calls from clients saying that they feel that they were incorrectly advised. Uh, and sometimes it's just in, you know, a result of buyer's remorse. Mm. Which at that point, unfortunately, I mean, there's no liability from a broker if uh, if you you know went forward with a deal mm-hmm. and you were aware of what you could or could not accept mm-hmm. and you chose to go down that road. That's not the broker's fault. Yeah. 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 We, like you described yourself, I don't think it's our job to tell someone to talk them into buying a property or to talk them into selling a property. My job is to facilitate the decision they've already made and help them do it in the best, most cost-effective manner they can. Like you, it's like, how can we get this done efficiently and cost-effectively so you buyer pay as little as possible or you seller get as much as possible? That's our job. 
Yeah, we we want to help our clients achieve their goals and overcome challenges that they have. Yeah. And I, I think that's the best way to do it, to be honest. I agree. So, all right, so let's move this forward. So we've got happy buyer and seller. Buyers moved into the house. They've lived there for 10 years. And now they have this messy fence that they share with their neighbor who they've grown to hate over the years. You wrote a brilliant blog about this. Please elucidate. Is it a good idea to sue over a fence? More often than not, I would say probably 90% of the time it is not. The issue with neighbor disputes is once the dispute is over, no matter how it ends, you're still living next to that person right. <laughs> unless it is such a bad environment that one of you feels compelled to move away, which I've noticed doesn't happen very often. So you have to There's go nowhere in. to go. Exactly. You have to go into it expecting that you're still going to be living next to this person at the end of the day. So, you know, again, from uh, the initial approach I generally take is to see if there's a way to move past the dispute with just simple communication. Mm -hmm. Whether it comes from me or it comes from the client themselves, mm -hmm. I've found maybe half the problems can be resolved that way, especially if you approach the other side with a practical solution. Whether it's because the fence is, is you know, falling down or mm -hmm. if my client wants to, you know, install a better fence. Right. And many times they're willing to take on most, if not all, the costs to do that. You know, the neighbor just has to understand that if it's on the dividing line, there will be some legal obligations by them to maintain, mm -hmm. you know, the structure going forward. Right. Um, this that, is a shared exactly. endeavor. Yeah. yeah. So I try to, you know, explain this to my clients and talk to them about the practical realities of, of moving forward with legal action against your neighbor. Mm -hmm. So normally when clients hire me and they decide that they do want to move forward after that, it is generally after an extended period of time of living next to this person and you know, it's gotten to the point where there's really nothing else that they can do but take legal action. So they've been fighting about this already for weeks or months. Yes, yes. So well, the pain is real. Yes. And one of the most recent cases I had, uh, the client had actually moved in almost two years ago to the day, and now when we're talking. And they tried their best to smooth things over with the neighbor, to, you know, communicate with them, to, you know, again, be cognizant of their mm -hmm. property where they had, you know, certain plants or foliage growing over to their side. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, it didn't really seem to matter what they did. Their neighbor was just unnecessarily difficult. And it wasn't mm. just with them. It was with everybody. Okay. So I could, I could see. A known issue in the yes, neighborhood. Yes. Got it. Many neighbors uh, did not like this particular neighbor, so they were very unpopular based on their prior actions and how they just generally just chose to treat people. I wonder if that was disclosed when they bought the house. And anyway. it actually wasn't. I did ask the client about that. That's awesome. But that is also presuming that the prior owner had issues with this neighbor. They, For all I know, they could have gotten along with them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I told the client that was something we would have to look into to see if there was actually a non-disclosure issue, but the client wasn't interested in, in that particular aspect of sure. it. So we just moved forward with the dispute with the neighbor. Now, I got lucky in this instance because the attorney on the other side I knew from prior experiences. That's fantastic. That's ideal. And, you know, I, I try to build bridges when I work with other people mm -hmm. uh, and maintain a good working relationship. And it ended up benefiting our clients in this particular instance because rather than me having to move forward getting a restraining order against the neighbor. Wow. Uh, and uh, for seeking damages for uh, property damage because they had damaged my client's fence, oh my we goodness. actually worked out an agreement that required the two parties to communicate. And, and that was both the attorneys. We decided this is what our client should have been doing from the beginning. Like, so, okay, kids, play nicely with each other. Yes. Now you are legally required to do that if you want to move forward with a dispute. And that typically will will mitigate a lot of costs in the long run. Mm -hmm. And it, again, it forces people just to come to the table. And it, I, I cannot tell you how many disputes have been avoided when people just actually take that step. And just talk a little bit. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. All right. So mm. let's take this up a notch. So you've got a neighbor and they're disagreeable. So when when does it cross a line from being a nuisance to legally harassment? Well, generally harassment is uh, an ongoing course of conduct by the person. Okay. So one-off incidents here and there or things that happen very sporadically, those are not sufficient to rise to the level of the kind of harassment where you can really take legal action mm-hmm. or at least legal action that's going to get you some kind of results to, okay. to you know, prevent the behavior from continuing. Uh, in, in the particular case I was talking about, it, that had initially what had occurred. It was just sporadic incidents here and there, but they steadily over time escalated where the two sides were just so disagreeable that it was, you know, threatening to kill the neighbor's dog and wow. things like that, which I mean, are just, that's way beyond what is considered to be acceptable behavior. Of course. You know, saying mean things to your neighbor and things like that, that that's, you know, an unfortunate, mm-hmm. you know, part of life. Some people are difficult, you know, to be around mm-hmm. and there's not really a lot of legal action you could take there. But when it starts bordering on threats or, you know, damage to your property and things like that, that's where it can get into the area where you can start to actually get some sort of legal recourse to stop that behavior from occurring. Wow. And are there situations where you've heard of neighbors actually getting restraining orders against each other? Yeah. I, I've helped neighbors get restraining orders against one another. And again, it just it's only when it's got to the point where there's really no other option. You can't work with the neighbor. Communication's not working. Sometimes they'll just ignore you because they, they don't care. They're mm-hmm. going to do what they want to do, and they're not going to stop unless somebody stops them. Mm. I was in a condo um, actually before... Mick and I moved into the house where I live now and the president of the HOA, I mean, I was this close to suing him for harassment because he would follow me around when I was out with my dog with his iPad and take video and pictures of me waiting for me to do something that I guess he thought was wrong, but constantly. And I, I kept telling him like, stop it. This is creepy. You know, and you realize you look like you're stalking me. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is, this is not a good look for anybody people, but oh, nuts. Okay. So I've got so many questions. You just have to come back often. So can we get into a little bit of landlord-tenant territory? Because I tend to deal with, you know, mom-and-pop landlords. Usually they've bought a house, and instead of selling it to buy another one, they make it a rental. And and so they have maybe one or two uh, investment properties, and they've got tenants. And I fear that they're making missteps all over the place. You know, like going into units um, when they're not supposed to enter. Yeah, you own it, but the tenant has a, a leasehold ownership interest by contract, right? And and I think that they're often confused about deposits. Like, what can you call a security deposit? What can you call a cleaning deposit? How do you manage those? Um, can you talk about things like that? Or what are you seeing? And, and issues of statewide rent control, they don't affect, affect these mom and pop landlords, do they? But they actually can. So I, I do quite a bit of landlord-tenant law, and the issues that you're discussing are, have been frequently coming up over the last two years. Because of COVID? Or? Uh, COVID has been part of it, mm-hmm. um, but I, 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 I'm, and I'm not sure if it's just because I'm getting more popular or there's just more landlord-tenant matters we do love that, you. <laughs> that, are, that are occurring. But I deal with a, a mix of property managers and, and then small uh, mom-and-pop landlords as well. They have mm-hmm. a few rental properties, and, and that's really, for many of them, their retirement income. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and it's... It's surprising how many of them are not aware of the limitations on when they actually have a right to come into the property or not. And it's it's always a bit surprising to me because I see how long they've been in business and how long they've been doing this. Right. And for many of them, it's just because the incident hasn't come up before. You mm-hmm. know? So they have no experience with it. And naturally, why would they have any reason to know, you know what the legal boundaries that they have? 
as an owner of the property are. But there are limitations in California as to when you can actually enter the property. Uh, and generally, I would imagine. I mean, <laughs> when can you just enter someone else's house? Um, if it's your rental property, mm -hmm. uh, if there's an emergency, you can enter the property without written notice. What kind uh, of emergency? Uh, leaking water, you know, mm. uh, anything that's going to put the tenant or the property in danger. Okay. I have maybe seen one or two instances where this was appropriate mm -hmm. in the past. So it doesn't happen a lot. I that that think is so. one instance. Okay. But for any other instance, as long as you give the tenant at least 24 hour written notice, mm -hmm. you can enter it to show the property to potential buyers mm -hmm. or potential tenants. If you're going to, if the tenant's going to be moving out and you've got someone you want to show it to, mm -hmm. uh, if you're providing necessary services or repairs to the property, mm -hmm. um, if the tenant ever lets you in, that you're always allowed in, you know, okay. uh, which uh, most people, they'll find that if there's a problem, their tenant tells them about them, they have someone come over to repair it, they're going to work with them and let them in. The only times I see it being really difficult is, you know, instances generally where the tenant is going to need to be evicted at some point. Right, no. right, right, right. Uh, there's some other uh, specific instances where if you're checking on fire alarms or carbon monoxide detectors, mm -hmm. uh, you, you can do that as well. California has really stepped up enforcement of those issues. And I even see sitting uh, building departments uh, citing people for not wow. having the required number of smoke detectors or carbon monoxide detectors. So to check and make sure those are functioning and mm -hmm. of course making sure you actually have them. That's Well, and again, that's for the tenant safety. So that is. all makes complete sense. Yeah. Let's say that a tenant is difficult about letting a landlord in to do routine maintenance and whatnot. And then when they do vacate, um, they've left the unit a mess, but they've been there for five years. You know, th this is area where I find landlords get confused and, and I have to tell them normal wear and tear is a bit subjective. And after two years, you can't you can't deduct their deposits for normal wear and tear, right? Well, you never can. You okay. never can. But you're right. The, is, the, the, the term is a bit of a misnomer because it's a little subjective. Yeah. What, what does that actually mean? Well, the landlord knows what their property looked like before the tenant moved in. What I always recommend clients do is every time you have tenant turnover, once they're out, document the condition of the property, video mm -hmm. or photograph, whatever you have, because if an incident comes up later or there's a dispute, that photo or video is going to say a lot more than your own subjective recollection will. And it's really useful for insurance purposes too. It's just good practice. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So cleaning is, is a big one that I frequently see. No doubt. Now, most rental units get delivered to people and they're relatively clean. So minor cleaning is generally expected unless the tenant really goes out of the way or they hire their own cleaning company to, oh, to come okay. in and take care of it. Then you're not going to really have a need for cleaning at that point. Normal wear and tear becomes a bigger dispute when it's things that over time have to be replaced. Mm -hmm. Carpet is one of them, for example. Mm -hmm. So when you've had a tenant living in a unit for, let's say, 10 years, right. typical carpets have a normal life of about five years. Yeah. No, that's different. I mean, you can get higher quality carpets that last longer, you know, but you know, that's just a general rule. But 10 years use. is a long time for any carpet. It is. It is. So at that point, charging a tenant for having to clean a carpet when it really should be replaced, uh, you're going to have a tough time being able to convince, you know, if it goes, you know, gets becomes a legal dispute, convincing a judge that that was appropriate. Right. Now, if a tenant artificially shortens the life of the carpet, that's a little different. So they live there for a year. It's a brand new carpet. It should have lasted for five years. You know, there, there's so they probably shouldn't have parked their motorcycle in the middle of the living room, right? <laughs> right, right. Maybe this was a bad idea. Yes, yes. Got it. Yeah, I, I think that landlords just need to be mindful of a deposit is just that. It's not their money. It is temporary money in case of there's an egregious something. 
And one of the biggest uh, pitfalls I find is with landlords who aren't as experienced with these issues is they don't observe the time periods when they have to itemize the deductions that they're going to make. And mm. it's within 21 days of the tenant vacating the property. Yeah. So if you don't do that, there is some case law that says that you legally should lose the rights to be able to retain the deposit and deduct from it. Mm -hmm. But this is always, the, the landlord always still has a right to charge for property damage and other things that are appropriate. So if it becomes a legal dispute, the landlord's still going to have their own claims to mm -hmm. the deposit as well. I, I see many people run into that uh, issue a lot where they miss it by a day or two. But I mean, that it's it's a rigid timeline, you know. And there's so many layers to that onion, too. It's, if somebody has an issue where they have a question about this, just call Tony. But before they do that, let's just take a quick minute. And Paul, would you do us the honor of saying a little bit about this week's sponsor? Absolutely. As always, you just point out again and again how you surround yourself with uh, great partners here at This Week with Wendy. And one of them is our sponsor for this week, Ford and Diulio. It's an Orange County-based boutique litigation firm with experienced attorneys from big law firms. Partners who founded it did so on the idea of aligned interest where their success is tied to your success, where they're rewarded for being efficient and effective and not just dragging litigation out, and where they engage in the relentless pursuit of their clients' goals, whether in litigation, mediation, or at trial. If you'd like to learn more about them, you could simply find them on the website. It's pretty simple, forddiulio.com, F-O-R-D-D-I-U. L-I-O, FordNDulio.com. All right. I, as always, my mind is racing with questions here. Do I get to ask one here of your guests here? I would be so disappointed if you didn't. <laughs> I don't even know if he'll answer this one here, but I'm going to throw this one out. <laughs> I'll bet he has seen some wild disputes, maybe really bad ones, maybe really silly ones, maybe absurd ones where people fight over stuff. Um, I'm reminded recently that one of my neighbors... I think he had a little too much to drink on Thanksgiving and took off on LinkedIn and started bashing and trashing me because I had parked my car in front of his house, <gasps> calling me names and he a loser. Your car yeah, on a I'm a loser. I'm a pathetic loser and everything here. Yeah. So I wonder, you know, anything that springs to mind, any cases, you know, just change the names, protect the innocent, to give us some idea of something either really bad or funny or crazy that you've seen. That particular instance sounds like uh, some some libel that, that may have been committed. I was actually going to ask you about that because yeah. you wrote an article about slander, and I'm like, tell me everything. Yeah. So thanks for the segue, Paul. Please. Yeah, okay. Of course. So uh, I think what you're referring to is is we wrote a, a, an article on slander of title, and yes. and that is something as I, I've seen frequently come up in the past. Not as crazy as the story that uh, Paul just told us. Yeah. It arises when someone makes a verbal or written um, disparaging comment. About about your title or ownership of property. I don't see it a lot in terms of verbal statements. That's interesting. So can you give us an example? Yeah. So someone has recorded uh, a deed against your property. If it affects your ability to sell the property, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's considered to be slander of title. And it gives you the right to bring a claim against them in order to have that statement, especially if it's a written one, removed. So if it comes up in the title chain, uh, whether it's an unauthorized deed, that that's frequently when I so see that So wouldn't that, that happen. just be fraud? Uh, it could be. It okay. could be fraud. The purpose of the slander of title claim is to get that um, that unauthorized statement about your title removed so that you can market and sell the property if you desire. Because ultimately, that is what this particular statement 
it's considered to be that even if it's um, you know in writing in the uh, in the deed history to get that removed so that it doesn't affect your ability to use your property as you wish because you're the owner and you should be able to do so. That is fascinating. Not quite as sexy as you know you're a deadbeat you parked in front of my house. <laughs> That's what and, I got. And your mother's ugly. No, I was you know? a pathetic loser. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> my bad. Yeah. My bad. So I I thought that you were going to say slander of title was something more to the effect of making statements that might just disparage or deter buyers from buying a property because they believed it to be, you know, undesirable for some reason that was not true. Sounds like it's slander, mm -hmm. which again, it could be uh, yeah. if it affects the individual's own, um, their, their own reputation. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what slander would be in that situation. But if they're trying to prevent buyers from buying the property, that's actually an interference with potential contractual uh, agreements that you could be entering, entering into, which is a cause of action in California. See? So again, just play nicely with others. A friend of mine who owned a couple rental properties decided to sell one, and he told the tenant, "Sorry, you know, we're going to sell it. I, mm -hmm. I just don't want to rent it anymore." And they started making comments to like everybody who came through. Well, this is a terrible place. The water problem. There's a sewer. There's noise problem. They were trying to talk everybody away from buying the thing. And hoping that he would just say, okay, I guess I'll just let you stay or something. And he was just horrified when he found out that what they were doing. Man, some people's kids. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got. I'm yeah. trying to be, I'm trying to keep this rated G. Some okay. people's darn kids. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and that that's where you get a broker involved and, and we navigate around it, you know, but it's, it's really unfortunate. I have one more question I want to sneak in here before we get to like the personal stuff, the, sure. the fun, all things Tony. But <laughs> housing discrimination and bias and racial bias in all of this has been such a hot button in my world. And the attorneys are talking about this constantly, especially now when we have, you know, 10, 20, 30 buyers competing to buy a house. It's hard to defend oneself after a seller has accepted one party, assure everyone else that they weren't selected because of something that was protected. You know, same sex couple or a single person or an older person or a younger person or a yellow person or a pink person or a black. You know what I mean? It's like there are so many things that could be con construed as bias. And I'm hearing that fair housing laws, which have always applied to us as fiduciaries, you know, obviously, but I'm hearing that it can also be extended to the seller. So if a seller, well intended, let's just say that a seller is aging out of a home where they raise their kids, now they've got grandkids and, and there's a dozen buyers competing for it and one buyer who didn't write highest offer but has little children and the seller's heart is melting going oh they're going to raise their family here like i did i want to pick them can they get in trouble for that they can especially if they make that fact known to the other buyers who are attempting to buy the property mm. you are not allowed to discriminate in the sale of property in california based on you know familial status so on yeah. whether someone has or doesn't have children right and that's one of the reasons why if you're selling a property, you really shouldn't ask somebody if they have kids or not. For one, it's, exactly. it's irrelevant to the transaction. Right. Can you afford to buy the place? And do you like it? Those are really yeah. the only things a seller needs to know. They don't need to know why the buyer wants to buy it. They don't need to know about who's going to be living there. I mean, those are things that they just don't need to concern themselves with. So honestly, even asking can potentially get them in hot water. It's really shocking. It's shocking for a lot of people to hear this. If you're selling your property, yes, it belongs to you. You do not get to be that selective about to whom you sell it. It could get you into a lot of legal trouble, and it's just not, unfortunately, something anybody is smart to do. Just don't do it. 
you know, unless, of course, you want to sell it to your granddaughter. It's a whole different thing. You know, right. intrafamily transactions can occur, but that's that's a separate issue. But if you're out there in the open market, you're selling your house, you need to be super, 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 super judicious about how you make this decision. And it needs to be based upon exactly what Tony said. Are they a bona fide, able, and willing buyer? And are they giving you the best terms of all of the buyers? If so, that's the one you take. Can I ask you a quick question? Is this one more reason you shouldn't show your own house? My wife would immediately start saying, well, tell me all about yourself. Oh, you got kids? Oh, you got grandkids? Where are you from? Or this. She would want another whole life story. And then she would be influenced to say, well, I don't care if it's more money. Gee, I just love this young couple or whatever. Maybe that's a reason to separate yourself yes. from the buyer. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, and yes. Okay. Do not that. ever let your Say wife yes be one home. more time. Yeah, right. No, you just can't. And that's why the whole buyer love letter thing is an issue, you know, because buyers were taking a picture of themselves and their, their two kids and their dog and their cat and their pony and whatever, you know, and putting it on top of their offer, hoping to sway the seller because a lot of sellers are really sweet people like your wife. Yeah. And you can't do that. Good brokers, most of us these days tell our clients, I'm not going to show you those letters because I don't want you to have any chance of ever being accused of being biased. If you didn't see their picture, you don't know what they look like. You know, well, I'm just not going to let you get into trouble. So Ugh, enough about that. So, yes, people, if you're doing anything as important to selling a property or engaging in any contractual obligation of any kind, please get some help. You know, one of us, both of us, I don't care, but, you know, hire some help. All right. So. Enough about that. We'll have to have you back in a few more months to talk about the latest and greatest disputes. But for now, my favorite part, and we've done this before. We're going to do it again. No problem. My own version of the famous Vanity Fair Proust questionnaire. I don't want to listen because I might sell my house to him someday, and I want to know anything about him here. (laughs) (laughs) Take your headphones off. Okay. So, Tony, what city do you call home? Uh, Costa Mesa. Nice. Nice, nice, nice. And since this is a show about real estate and that's your home, tell us what you love about Costa Mesa. Honestly, uh, it's it's a lovely little city that my wife and I have frequently visited. We, you know, wonderful nightlife. We don't go out as often because we have younger children. But, you know, if and when we do, there's a lot of options there. Very good food options. Um, and it's centrally located in Orange County. And uh, that that is really helpful to us because where our kids go to school and where my wife and I work, you know, it, it makes it easier to get around uh, being in that location. It really is nicely located for commuting. I love it. So aside from your house or maybe your house, I'm not going to judge. Um, what's your most prized possession? So my, my son over the last year has become infatuated with baseball. Oh. One of his favorite things to do is to just play catch. And so my baseball glove has become one of my most uh, treasured possessions because it's almost like an end of the day stress reliever for both of us. I grew up playing baseball. I love baseball. Uh, and I recently, over the past, I'd say five to 10 years, became kind of less interested in it just because, you know, I've watched it over the years, but it's, you know, over time, it's, you know, become a little boring and it's, it's difficult to watch on TV compared to other sports. But he's got me, like, you know, really interested in it again. And so, like, just. That is the sweetest thing. Oh. Yeah. I know you're going to have like a baseball glove shrine one day. I just know you are a little plexi case for it. I might help make it. Just have your wife call me. Um, What do you consider, and you've got many, your greatest achievement to date? Well, you know, since I started my own business a little over two years ago, I'd say my greatest achievement in doing that has been my firm's reputation. My clients have, you know, kind of, you know, sung my praises from the mountaintops and they do it publicly online. I mean, it's everywhere from Facebook to Google to Yelp to Avo, which is a, a legal publication where mm-hmm. you have online profiles for attorneys. 
And my clients across the board give me wonderful reviews, just positive results. And I recently started uh, sending out surveys to clients once their matter is resolved because I want to know where I can get better. And Smart. there are always ways to do that, mm -hmm. but it's always wonderful to hear that clients are very satisfied with the love of communication, which is a frequent complaint of attorneys. Yes. Know? So I, I, I will keep note because the state bar keeps statistics on what the top complaints about attorneys are. And I want to avoid the top ones. There so you go. I know if I'm avoiding those, I'm probably in good shape. Not to say I don't pay attention to all of the types of complaints, but you know, infrequent communication, not knowing what's going on with their matter, those are things clients become very frustrated about. So I want to make sure that I'm not doing, I'm not engaging in those type of behaviors. And I'm always pleased to see that clients, when they return the survey results, are are very happy with that aspect of working with my firm. So I'm so delighted to hear it. And it's been such a personal pleasure for me to watch your your business grow. I, mean, I just, I revel in that. And I'm, I know you. I adore you. <laughs> All right. So, and the prior answer may influence this next one. What, if you have one, is your personal motto? don't really have a personal motto, but I just have a general way of working uh, with my clients and working with people in general. Uh, and that's just to be kind, you know, and that can mean a lot of things to different people. But to me, it's letting clients say what they need to say, mm -hmm. because I know frequently they don't feel like they're listened to, mm. especially by attorneys. You know, I don't want to say generally in life, but with attorneys, oftentimes they don't feel like they're listened to or that they really had a chance to speak their mind. So I like to make sure clients get a chance to do so. And, and oftentimes I'm able to gather additional information that I didn't really think I needed, but it can be helpful. And even if it's not when it comes to the legal advice I'm going to provide to them, mm -hmm. but it helps me understand mentally where they are. Yes. And, and sometimes it, it can help me understand really why they're approaching their decisions from more of an emotional standpoint rather than an objective standpoint where they can kind of step back from the dispute and say, okay, I understand where, you know, where I'm at legally and what I can and can't do. Many people have a difficult time doing that if they've been living in it for so long. That, sure. Like that neighbor dispute I told you about, you know, when you've been living next to a difficult person for two years. It's really hard to say, you know what, I'm not going to be emotional about this. I'm going to be objective and I'm just going to listen to all the things my attorneys say. Sometimes they just they need to get things off their chest. Yes. So I, I like to give them the opportunity to do that. So, you know, and you've just brought this full circle so beautifully because at the beginning of the conversation we had and throughout it, you've talked about the importance of communication and listening should be more than half of one's communication. So it's all part and parcel with the same message. Be kind, communicate, you know, just go be nice. Thank you so much. Of course. I appreciate having you. All right, people, that's a wrap for this week. So please join us next week. And of course, listen to this podcast wherever you most like to listen to your podcasts.